A nun? Oh, Kathleen. You're a 17-year-old girl. I was called, and I'm gonna become a nun, and there's really nothing that you can say that's gonna make me change my mind. Wow, you know, that sounds like the tone that you might expect from a mother and daughter fight about boyfriends or clothes or something like that, but it's not. It's actually from a new movie about becoming a nun. It's called Novitiate. The word means novice, especially in a religious setting. So how do you use music to set that mood? Young women entering a convent? Well, a St. Louis composer helped set the mood for this 1950s, 1960s era Sony Pictures film starring Melissa Leo and Margaret Qualley. Chris Stark is that composer. He's well-known and respected, but as far as film work, Stark was a novice himself. I'm Willis Ryder-Arnold. And I'm Nancy Fowler. And this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. Chris Stark is a composer of contemporary classical music and a professor at Washington University. And he came into the Novitiate Project, which was shot in Nashville, right before the movie was almost finished, At the last minute, director Maggie Betts wanted some themes to sort of tie the film together. And of course, doesn't everything come down to who you know? Absolutely. Turns out one of Stark's best friends was the music supervisor for the film, and he asked Stark if he wanted to give it a go. Stark just happened to be at the home of a world-renowned composer who's now deceased when he got the call. I am, at that moment living and working in Aaron Copeland's house in Westchester, New York. So I had gotten this residency to, to like live in his home for um, six weeks and write music and oh, like wow. on, on his piano and on his desk and stuff, which was totally awesome. And um, they were editing the film in Manhattan. And so it's very easy to hop on a train and just like go down to Manhattan and meet with them. And that was like something I was able to do instantaneously after someone was like, hey, can you meet with them and talk about this? And I was like, yeah, I'll just like hop on this train and go talk about it right now. And if I was in St. Louis, who knows? And so I met with the director and the editor of the film, um, a woman named Susan Morse, who goes by Sandy. She was Woody Allen's editor um, on his early films in like the 70s and stuff. And so... Star connection. Very talented people. <laughs> I was a little bit Absolutely. like... I'd never scored a film before, so I was like, oh my God, this is sort of terrifying. But I also had that like youthful naivete of being like yeah I could do this like of course I could do it and then you get into the process and you're like oh my god can I do this this is like (laughs) this is why people you know lose years of their life making film scores because it's really intensive so I just went down there met with them I said you know I'd love to try to do this and a lot of the source music was classical music and that's my background and so I was like I know what the techniques are that these composers are using I feel like I could infuse what I'm going to compose with some of the things that you're already using in the film And there was a little bit of a kind of Copeland connection, not only because you were staying in the house, right? Yeah, so there's a lot of um, Americana in the film. Like like I said, they filmed it in Nashville, and they were sort of trying to, it's in the, it takes place in the 60s, I believe, and they were trying to sort of represent this kind of pastoral American thing in a lot of the music. And so they were using a lot of Copeland's music in the temp score, and the, the temp score is like the stuff that's placed there to help them kind of put things together and then someone comes in and and composes something over the top of that and so you know I remember like the editor um, saying something like she thought this was like uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was like working in Hamilton's house or something when he wrote Hamilton and she was like oh this is like Lin-Manuel Miranda you know I was like I don't know if it's like that (laughs) wow auspicious (laughs) beginnings for sure so what is the story of the film it's pretty complex, actually. The The director is, I think, in like five, ten years, I, she's going to be like a big deal because she's insanely talented. I mean, she wrote and directed this movie, and it's her 
like first kind of like fictional feature film, I believe. I don't. She did a, a documentary, I think, before and a short, but. She's incredibly well read and accomplished. And when she talks about how she put this film together, like she read all these books and like did all this like deep research to weave this kind of movie about nuns, basically novices, um, young girls uh, in the 60s and primarily about Vatican II and how Vatican II changed the role of women in the Catholic Church. Um, That's sort of like, you know, the overarching idea. But really, it's kind of about these characters and these these women, these young girls who become nuns or want to become nuns and sort of their relationships with one another and uh, with their, you know, superiors and this sort of stuff, which is really fascinating. So given that that's the plot, did you try and hold any of those kind of themes in your head while you were doing the composition? Totally. So, I mean, the director is awesome. She was able to give me very specific sort of like feelings that she wanted to convey. So she would be like, you know, I want this to have this like super sweet innocence, but like almost like deep, profound, like this profundity, but very, very innocent feeling, which a 17 or 18 year old girl might have before she goes into um, convent or something. And um, I know that some of the music that she was also using in the film by composers like Arvo Perret, um, who use this kind of what's called, uh, they call it holy minimalism, which is sort of hilarious. I, I think of it as like, a, it's kind of like a, a return to a sort of simplicity and a deep simplicity in a way that's very profound and religious and complex. Um, I could play you a piece of his music, and I guarantee you've heard it on films before because he's, he's someone that's sourced a lot on a lot of films right now. But he uses these very simple techniques, and they have this, this quality of almost like sweetness or a, a music box, or there's something naive and innocent about it. But there's also something, because of the way he moves the notes that is very profound like speaks to this sort of like what is music what is religion why do these things have this kind of like attraction to us that we can't explain i think that given that we've talked a lot about the music up to this point we should listen to a little bit of it it feels a little more peaceful there. Maybe there's a resolution in sight. Am I completely off? No. This is earlier in the film where these these young novices are very hopeful and uh, it's playing into this kind of pastoral idea of, of uh, you know, the 60s. And I think they're talking to one another about their sort of interests and hopes and dreams. And, um, you know, there's a solo cello, which is a very expressive instrument, um, and the harmonies are more major now, all sorts of things um, in that cue that would, you know, lead someone into a, a place of more peace or hope. I was curious about that solo cello line that runs through to me is somehow, as you described with the earlier stuff, it's both like good background music, but actually surprisingly captivating. And I'm curious how you try and create something that's both supportive and background, but has drive to it. So this cue actually was an idea. There were several ideas that we recorded that were not actually um, placed in scenes. And this, I think, was because we had a little extra time actually in the studio to like be like, okay, we have these like five extra ideas. Let's like just record them. And we sent them. And then I was when I saw the movie. It was like and ended up in the film actually. And so I was like, sort of like, oh, nice. Like that that made it in the movie. Um, 
to that idea, that's that's a super interesting concept. And I don't know if you know a lot about like ambient music or Brian Eno or Eric Satie, who's like an early 20th century composer. These guys had this concept of like what's now known as like Muzak, you know, or like music that's, as Brian Eno calls it, as interesting as it isn't, <laughs> which is, a I think, a fascinating concept that if you want to pay attention to it, there's all this like intricacy and things going on that you could think about. But also it's very easy to not pay attention to it, too. Um, Elevator music. Yeah, exactly. I think Satie might have called it wallpaper, musical wallpaper. I mean, that's kind of the goal of film music. It's like you really don't, I mean, unless you're John Williams, you don't really get to have the, the moment where the full orchestra kind of like, you know, kicks up and you take over the, the drama of the, the film. Um, and so you sort of have to like get your moments in where you can, can find them. When you're immersing yourself in the music and starting to think about and feel about how you might proceed, how does this work? I mean, do you watch the film first and then what happens? So I was sent um, clips of the film. The, uh, I'm not even sure I was sent the entire film. And at that point, the entire film hadn't been you know, locked together fully. So I was sent scenes and with ideas for music on those scenes or possibly with, like I said, the temp score, something there. And um, then I have to sort of try to, you know, fit the vibe of that scene and, and compose along with it. And so uh, when I first started, I was yeah, just sitting in like Aaron Goblin's studio, like watching these little things on Vimeo and trying to like plunk out notes at the piano or like thinking of like... What so while you're watching. Yeah, what can set the tone for this? And then it goes straight into software stuff, a lot of software stuff to try to send mock-ups and things like that to the director. And um, the sound of these things is obviously really important for how people respond to them. Like you have to spend a lot of time thinking about... Um, the mock-up you're making to try to entice them to say like, oh, that works. Because if it sounds weird or if it's going to sound much different later when you record it with professional musicians, it's hard for to, to get that leap to take place unless you've tried to make a mock-up that's like somewhat close to that. So it's like a synthetic version basically. So I'll, in my computer, I have all this software that allows me to notate the music obviously, but then also to try to recreate um, like a, what, what it would sound like if played by real instruments done with fake instruments that are designed to resemble real instruments. Um, so a lot of, this happens actually in a lot of TV and stuff like that because the turnaround is so fast. A lot of what you're hearing is, is like not real like stringed instruments or not real brass instruments, but samples of those things that people have sort of edited together to sound as real as possible. It's like a super, super, super professional version of Garage Band. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it literally is the same company. It's it's, it is the souped-up version of GarageBand. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then you mail that in, and they say, this is great, we love it, or we need to rehash some things. But then what happened? Did you go back in and sit with some studio musicians, or how did that actually come to be a full score? There was a period of time where I don't think I slept for like an entire week, which I had never done before. I worked literally when I woke up. I'd get up at like 8 a.m. after having gone to bed at you know 5.30 or something. And you just work nonstop until the next 5.30 until you literally can't think anymore. And there's people responding to your emails that entire time. There's not a point in which, like, people are unavailable. And so I'm literally just throwing out ideas, just idea, 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 idea. And the director's like, no, 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 no. But, but I should say that this director was awesome to work for. Like, I had, like, the best experience working with somebody. And I've heard that some directors can be really difficult to work for, and that really, like, sours people on working in film business. But she was, like, amazing, like, super positive and someone that you just wanted to produce work for, like, more and more work for. So basically film scores are fueled by 
sleep deprivation and all the hallucinations that might come from that. Movies are filled by sleep deprivation. Like that (laughs) any movie makes like an impact on you is remarkable to me after seeing how it was like put together and how much everyone was working nonstop to try to get it to happen. It was crazy. It really interests me because it kind of like defies the expectation of the composer who's like on residency by themselves just immersed in their music if you're also fielding email inquiries and getting input from people and things like that. I mean, ultimately, the director is the person who makes all the decisions in the film. And so uh, their name is the one that's behind it, really, that people talk about. And so, and they do. They, she, um, Maggie Betts is her name. She very thoughtfully and carefully molded all this stuff together with a lot of attention. And um, from those initial mock-ups and things and sending her stuff, then she, once she made final decisions of like, okay, 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 we got the stuff. And then we immediately hopped on a plane to Nashville which has become a, a spot where a lot of films are being scored uh, because I don't actually know why they have the studios and they have now the Nashville Symphony with these great musicians and a lot of retired musicians will move there to do really? studio work and stuff like that. So they they have companies that you basically just hire out a group of musicians in these great studios. The studio is called Ocean Way. It's like a fantastic studio in Nashville that has an amazing sound. And so, and then we spent the afternoon, you know, putting the, recording all of the cues and then that stuff just immediately goes like from their hard drive straight to the the people who mix the audio and everything together in the film and at that point basically I was I was done and they you know they take pieces of it and they they'll move things around or stretch things out or speed them up you know, they'll do all sorts of stuff to try to get it to to fit the vibe of the film but uh, I didn't see the final product actually until like a year later at the Toronto Film Festival which was pretty exhilarating on this like giant screen with all these people to like watch this thing happen that I'd never done before but uh so you were pleased with how it turned out oh yeah I mean it's like I mean to have a movie first of all like get picked up by like Sony Pictures Classics is like crazy especially if it's your first time out even attempting this stuff um and then to have it even have the possibility of playing in theaters and stuff like that is just like huge I mean there's major actors and actresses that make movies that don't see theaters you know and like to have that happen is really awesome how do you feel that's going to end up reflecting back on your career as a composer and musician that you're kind of having access to this entire audience that's not necessarily like new music or new classical music fans? That's super interesting, too. I haven't really thought about like how people might perceive it. I mean, no one knows who I am for the most part, <laughs> other than like the handful of people in the new music community that I've gotten to know through like studying and festivals and this sort of stuff. I'm curious what they'll, how they'll perceive it actually, because it's it's film music. It's a totally different concept of making music than the, the normal world I live in, which is like, by most people's standards, pretty experimental or pretty far out or like uh, different. But I think we're in this kind of interesting era with artists and things where people are doing tons of different stuff, and I think that I think I think that's interesting. I think it's fun to do that and have to wear different hats and. I think it's cool that you can. You don't really have to kind of be a super specific kind of voice now in order to to have a career. So we're going to play another cue at this point, and then we'll check back in with you once we've heard it.
So in the beginning of that, I mean, in my mind, I saw, you know, Mother Superior scurrying about the Abbey, <laughs> standing in the doorway, kind of an austere figure looking at uh, the novitiates. <laughs> Tell me what was going on in, in your mind and where, where that came from for you. So this was sort of a, this is one of the cues in the film in which I don't think there's any dialogue on top of this cue, which is, I think, one of the reasons why I shared it with you guys to possibly play. Um, and it's meant to basically, yeah, just create this atmosphere that when you're moving around to, to looking at these people, I think they're one scene that might be eating and one scene these nuns are walking down a hallway. Um, and then this leads into this great scene with Dennis O'Hare, which is actually, like I think, available on, on Yahoo right now to, to watch. Um, to Basically, it's like a transitional sequence to try to move, to create motion. That's why they introduced the piano, to try to get this sense of motion towards this next um, scene. But yeah, it's just a lot of kind of long shots of this beautiful school that they filmed in with these all these you know girls and the habits and things like that. So in your head, when you're composing that music, I know it might be hard to explain to someone who's not a musical expert, but how do you think of those moments? Like, I'd like strings here. I would like piano here. This is how those things will function to a listener. Sure. So we went with piano and strings mainly because they're sort of, um, uh, they're relatively, they work in scenes like this because they, they're good background instruments. Um, if you were to use, say, like a flute or an oboe or a clarinet or even a solo violin or something like that, it, it draws your ear in in a very intense way because it has a very particular timbre. And um, in lots of film scoring, you don't want to do that. You're there to like highlight or to, to play something on the background of the screen, what's happening on the screen. And so even things like the strings in that are not using any vibrato, which introduces a human element to like even take that away so that it fits like as this background. Um, but then also there's budgetary concerns. We thought it would be really great to have strings and we should spend maybe our money on strings. And, and then a solo piano is always is a, just a classic sound. And then there was a lot of music already in the film that was strings and piano and stuff like that. So we thought it would tie in with that as well. Um, but yeah, and then also just some of the specific techniques and things like that, just of these undulating things where you just basically have two lines and one of them moves while the other one stays the same, has this, it works really well with strings in a homogenous instrument choir. Um, the, to blend together to have this feeling of tension and resolution or resolution that becomes more tense or something like that. And so all those things, do they play into the, what I felt was a, and as you mentioned, sort of a somber yet hopeful sort of an idea? Is that at all what you were going for? Definitely. And at this mo moment in the film, it's much more complex. This is a more tense type of music, like sort of in the, I don't know if it's in like the late second or third act, you know, where things are much more dramatically complicated. And so it should feel kind of tense or feel somber. Yeah. Or, but also kind of austere. I think there's an austerity to it, too, that's because of the, the environment that these people are in. And they're feeling these very complicated things, but it's very, you know, buttoned up. Is there a turning point happening at this juncture that you can talk about? Um, this movie's not out yet, so I don't know. If, like, I'll get a phone call from, you know, some executive, it's like, <laughs> right. all right. Okay, we'll just take that. <laughs> but there's, they'll say that, like, one of the main characters is, like, definitely in a tumultuous spot in this part of the film. This particular sort of tense, undulating string thing happens a lot around this character's development. 
I'm curious, given that you do a lot of work with uh, acoustic instruments and electronic instruments, and you've got a whole career that's going forward that's not necessarily just tied to this film, what's next? So right now, I have a couple things on the horizon. I'm actually going to be traveling to Norway um, for the months of January, February, March uh, to live in Bergen and, and work on some pieces there, work on some string quartet music, work on a, a, an ensemble sort of chamber ensemble piece for a group in Cleveland. Um, have some other stuff sort of ahead of that down the line, uh, even year, year, year and a half from now. Uh, chamber opera that I'm working on as well. and uh, lots, of, lots of random projects here and there, but always exciting. I suppose that's like too much information probably, but <laughs> lots of things going on. So what happens if another film project comes along during this same period? What will you do? Uh, that's a good question. I've thought about that because, you know, after I went to this Toronto festival and I like saw all these famous people and I saw like this whole biz, I was like, wow, this is cool. Like maybe you should try to like get another film scoring gig, you know, but like after I finished this one, I was like, I'm happy to go back into my, my normal sort of like obscure composing life and, you know, make these weird pieces. And I was like, that was a fun foray. Um, but now that this film has legs, it's like maybe it's possible that I could try to, to get another gig. Uh, me and the music supervisor are currently trying to like figure out best ways of going about trying to make that happen. But we, I don't think I've thought really through the implications of having to drop everything you're doing. You know, especially, I mean, unfortunately right now I'm, I'm on leave from teaching from Washington University where I work. Um, so I could probably make it happen. But if I was in the middle of a semester, I couldn't just like not show up to teach my courses. And it demands that sort of time and attention. And I think that's why everyone lives in close proximity, like in L.A. and New York and things like that. Because once the work starts, you kind of have to like go go all in to make it work. That was St. Louis composer Chris Stark talking about his first film score for a movie called Novitiate. And this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast, produced by Will's writer Arnold. And Nancy Fowler, with help from our editor David Caceres. You can find Cut and Paste at stlpublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis Public Radio's podcast series Cut and Paste is made possible by space, architects, designers, and builders, creating St. Louis's favorite spaces.